Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this is one of those stories that uh, I think is making a lot of people do a double take, with the headline being, Cracked Piece of Metal Heals Itself in an Experiment That Stuns Some Scientists. So what exactly happened here? Joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Michael Demkovich, research participant and associate professor at Texas A&M Materials Science and Engineering. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. My pleasure. This it sounds like something out of the Terminator film uh, with a piece of cracked metal healing itself. What actually happened here? So it's we didn't build a T-1000 yet. We're not planning to build one. What we really just saw is that cracks normally are expected just to get longer. We saw them getting shorter. So that's peeling. That's cracks uh, fusing back together and getting shorter. And of course, the applications could be endless, but you know, mostly in making infrastructure better or you know, devices and things like that last longer. And were you specifically looking for that, or was this something that during this experiment that you and the others that were part of this noticed happening? A kind of it was a kind of a side effect. It was a little bit of a mix. So the effect is something that I predicted about ten years ago without any hope of really seeing it confirmed. And then the experiments were being done for a different reason, but then accidentally, serendipitously, they ended up confirming the prediction, right? So they were aware of the prediction, they saw it, and they said, oh, I guess it worked. You mentioned that it was something that you had kind of predicted or had worked on 10 years ago. So, And I saw that you had been quoted in that saying that it wasn't completely unexpected given the work that you had done in 2013. Uh, so not unexpected, but it still seems like it's taking a lot of people a bit by surprise. Yeah. No, it's it's wild. It's It's predicted, but, you know, there are a lot of predictions that never get verified. And, you know, this is one of those predictions where the experiment that's required is really hard. And so a lot of kudos go to my collaborators at Sandia National Labs, who were uh, led by Dr. Brad Boyce. He was the lead on the study. And they have this very special, I would say, probably worldwide unique setup where they can actually do these kinds of experiments. And so what what was actually, walk us through what was being done, what, what you were observing or what the other scientists were observing as far mm-hmm. as I understand. So this was a crack in, was it platinum? It was platinum. So the, the experiment itself was about metal fatigue. Fatigue is when you bend the metal back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it doesn't break on, on just one bend. But then when you just keep bending it, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker and eventually breaks. Right? So you've, everybody's probably familiar with that from you know, bending a spoon or something like that. So that's fatigue. That's called metal fatigue. And it accounts for, I don't know, 90% of all metal failures. It's probably the the most common reason why metals fail. 
And so they were conducting a study on that. They wanted to know how cracks actually form during fatigue, right? Because you start out with something that doesn't have a crack, and then that crack appears and grows and gets longer, and eventually it breaks. So that's what they were trying to do. And they were seeing cracks form. They saw these little cracks form. They were looking in the transmission electron microscope. That's the name of the instrument. Very, very fancy because they could do observations and at the same time do the fatigue loading. That's unusual. And so they could see these cracks forming and they could see them growing and they could see them advance a certain way. And then after a certain number of, of loading cycles, the crack would just fuse back together and retract. And then after additional loading, if they continued loading it, they would see that the crack would go in a different direction. So you could see it advances, heals, and then goes somewhere else. And, and over what kind of a time period did all of that happen? So their experiments last anywhere from, you know, 15 minutes to a few hours. Uh, so these are relatively fast experiments compared to how long fatigue takes in components like cars and bridges and things like that. So it's kind of accelerated for the purposes of doing it in the lab. But so seeing then the cracks form from the metal fatigue, like you described, but then seeing them fuse back and, and heal, what were the, the factors? Was temperature a factor or, or can you explain how did that actually happen? So uh, great question. Uh, and, and this is going to get a little technical, uh, but I'll try, to, I'll try to basically highlight the two most important things. The first really important thing is that, as you pointed out, that this was being done in platinum, which is a very special kind of metal that doesn't oxidize. It doesn't form any rust layer, right? So if a, if a crack forms, you still have bare metal faces on, the, on both sides of the crack. And so if, you're really, if you can really align those faces and press them back together, they'll do something that's called cold welding. So they'll, they'll just weld together. The atoms will just bond across those faces as if you were, you know, joining two molecules. So that's the first thing, cold welding. So there's no additional temperature or anything. It just happened at room temperature, at the temperature of the experiment. And the other factor, which we honestly don't know yet how important it is, is that there was no air in this experiment. So this experiment was being done in vacuum. Mm. We don't know if, uh, if putting in air would change things. So that's actually kind of the second thing that we want to look at now that this first part of the study is over whether this can still be done in air. Because I would imagine if it could be done in air, that could lead to a whole lot of things, whether it's talking about, like you mentioned, bridges, cars, things that, that could start repairing themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And, but even without air, you know, we are interested in applications in space. Um, so you can put components and things out there. It's in the vacuum. It's in the vacuum of space. And do we want things to self-heal in space? Absolutely. It's hard to go up there and repair things. And you mentioned so, so the next step in this or, or taking it and seeing if it could happen in outside of the vacuum. Will you also be, what else happens now that, that this has been observed? What, what kind of is the next experiment or the next step? Well, so the next thing that we want to do is look and see if it happens in air. Uh, so that's, that's going to be a tough experiment because it's hard to look um, in the transmission electron microscope if you're not in vacuum. So that's going to be a little bit of a challenge, another instrumenta instrumentation challenge, right? How do we get the right tools? But that's the next step. And then uh, the other thing that, of course, we're interested in is how can we move this to some specific application? So if for anyone who's counting, it was 10 years from the time that we predicted this to the time when we observed it, 
I expect that, you know, natural pace of, of advance in, in technology is that it'll be another 10 years before we can get this into an application. All right. So not not a huge period of time, but a few years. Not a huge, but right. yeah. I mean, that, those 10 years went by pretty fast for me, but... Uh. <laughs> Um, and we were talking about platinum here. Is there a possibility that other metals could do this as well? Yes. In fact, the, the experiment reported the same observation in copper. And we had a couple of uh, simulations, computer simulations that we did, where we saw it also happening in aluminum, I think. So in principle, it can happen in any metal. You know, in principle, there's nothing about the the way that it happens that would prevent it from happening in other metals. But the observation so far limited to platinum and copper. Well, it's uh, fascinating uh, to hear how this uh, happened and uh, what could potentially happen next with this. Dr. Demkovic, thank you so much for taking the time and for joining us today. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. It is that time of year, the holiday season. Maybe you're going out more than you would at other times of year. Are you tipping more as well? That is a question that contributor for Mornings with Simi, Scott Schantz, is looking at. Good morning to you. Hi, how are you? Very well, you? Uh, good, except this tipping thing has got me in a bit of a tizzy, as I think a lot of people are going to get. Because inflation and cost of living and just the, the whole thing, financial thing, Everybody is tense and stretched, and it gets worse this time of year. And uh, that's when this conversation always becomes the most fun, Jill. Uh, <laughs> it does. So the question, yeah, like you posed is, should you tip more, like over and above the amount that you normally tip at the holidays? And I worked in a restaurant for years and years and years, uh, like decades ago, and I always assumed that this was the case. We got tipped a little bit more at Christmas. People were kind of generous. It's gift-giving time. And uh, because it's the beginning of December. A mm-hmm. bunch of lists are out with all of the sort of recommendations. Do you know Emily Post, that yes. website? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Emily Post, it doesn't necessarily apply, but there's just some fun information here to kind of like run down. I think most people in Vancouver don't have like a pool cleaner and, uh, <laughs> you know, like a gardener and stuff. But in cases like that, they say that you should be tipping uh, one week's pay. You should give, if you have like a, a, a staff, a personal trainer, you should tip like the cost of uh, one session. Hairdresser, you should tip the like the full cost of one haircut. You know, these people that you see kind of normally. But I think the thing that, that people are most concerned about is tipping your servers because we're going out for Christmas cheer. That uh, Like I, I think I tip my server and my haircutter and nobody else, right? I think that's kind of most normal for people. So that's sure. where we'll focus in. So uh, normally you tip like I would say I tip between 15 and 20 percent, uh, like 20 percent is the high end, 15. So somewhere in there is kind of normal. And uh, around the holidays, they say that if you were having good service, you should be tipping between 30 and 40 percent to your server, bartender, waiter, person in a restaurant. Huh. That seems high, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> to me, that's insane. 40 percent. 40 percent. Hmm. And interesting, because we were just looking, was it just yesterday, weren't we? We were looking at the new Gordon Ramsay restaurant oh, menu. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. And just so, so if you look at that then, if, I'm trying doing the math in my head, the burgers there are about $25 to $30. Sure, it's yeah. It's not a cheap restaurant. So if you're having a burger at 30 bucks, you're supposed to tip 40%. So add 40% to that yeah, cost. Yeah, $12. Huh. Yeah. So, and I mean, I think if I'm going to go out with someone for a dinner, it's probably going to be about 200 bucks, right? After drinks and maybe an appetizer and two mains. 
that would be an $80 tip on a $200 bill, they're saying, is what you should give at Christmas. And that's if the service is good. If the service is not good, you can give yourself a break. You can tip 30%, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So $200 bill, here's $60 for the server. Now, conventional wisdom, uh, let's say 20%, which you would normally tip if the service is good the rest of the year, $40 on a $200 bill. Even that, to me, seems high. Right? That's high. I think that's keeping people from going out and going to places. It's just, uh, I think maybe we accept that because it's the holidays, because it's Christmas, we uh, are going to be spending more than we have. Uh, Just throw it all in the pot and we'll pay it off in the new year. Um, But they also say, you know, like Emily Post, only tip what you can afford to. Uh, Don't feel like it's supposed to be um, a necessary thing. Like you should feel free to uh, tip what you're comfortable with. And uh, and another interesting stat that I uncovered this morning, Jill, 60% of people surveyed in Canada Mm -hmm. would love to see tipping go away in general and just go to a straight like pay what they're worth, pay servers, pay hairdressers, pay mechanics what they're worth. No more tipping. Right. I could see that. I'm not surprised by that because it is it is kind of creeping into all of those places that maybe it wasn't before. There's more of an expectation. I know we've talked about this before at the, the private liquor store. Right. What have you done for me? I went and got my stuff off the shelf and you've... Ch- I, I mean, I don't tip the, the person at the grocery store. Am no. I supposed to do that now? Do you... So do you feel when you do that, when they turn the machine to you and you hit no tip, do you feel like, oh, maybe they're looking at me and judging? Or oh, like, do you feel guilty a little there's bit? There's one place where they do look at you, but then there's another place where they say, oh, hold on a second, and they hit the no tip, uh, saying okay. it's ridiculous. But I think it's a smart move, because then they also have a cash tip ah. jar, where I think people appreciate that, and maybe will then tip in the cash tip jars. Eh, it's whatever your personal preference is, right? For sure, yeah. And I know there's all sorts of servers and uh, bartenders and people who will make the, this argument of they have to tip out. Yes. You know, they tip out a certain portion to the rest of the restaurant and the establishment. And of course, that accounts for some of this, but no one's tipping out at the private liquor store or at the (laughs) grocery store or at, you know, like those type of places. Uh, Bottom line is you should be tipping a little more at Christmas if you're feeling generous and the service is good. But as always, it's up to you. I honestly, I think that this tipping thing is I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know that it's ever going to go away, but I think that it's going to come back under, um, back to down to earth, to more reasonable standards, you know? Yeah. Well, we shall see. And we'll see what people are saying about this this morning. Scott, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to check in with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. Good morning to you. And good morning, Joe. Good morning. Well, lots to talk about and the polling numbers that uh, we looked at. We've talked a bit about these. Things aren't looking great. Well, we'll get to those. And also when it comes to the uh, economic front, some uh, not so great news. Yeah, the government's pretty happy with the polling numbers. It shows them comfortably uh, ready to form a majority government if the election were held tomorrow and the opposition is split between three parties. So you can't ask for more than that. Uh, we've been in power for, gee, you know, the Democrats have been around since 2017. They're getting a little long in the tooth as a government. Mm-hmm. So very encouraging. The economic news is not so good. So Ever since we had that flap over whether or not the budget books were cooked in the 1990s, we have an institution in British Columbia called the Economic Forecasting Council. It's a group of a baker's dozen of economists from 
independent of government, uh, the chartered banks, other organizations that study the economy and make forecasts, they meet every year at this time and they give the finance minister a report, or actually 13 reports, on what they expect uh, for this year uh, wrapping up in terms of growth and what they expect for next year. The Ministry of Finance pays pretty close attention to the forecast. Generally, when we get the budget in February, the government makes a point of saying we heard from the independent forecasters and in the name of prudence, we're going to go slightly under their forecast. So they listen to these numbers. Uh, yesterday's numbers were not good. Uh, Forecasting Council thinks we're going to have less than 1% growth this year, uh, for the year we're wrapping up, and uh, a half a point of growth in 2024. So you put those two together, that is pretty much flat. The economy is going to be flat for two years. And no, the finance minister listened politely, uh, came out and said, well, We've had some good years in British Columbia. We have a pretty good uh, debt level compared to other Canadian jurisdictions. We have some room to move. She's saying the New Democrats are not going to cut program spending. They're not going to raise taxes. They're going to stay the course, and they think they can absorb the impact, as I said, Jill, of two years of relatively slow growth. Hmm. And and so trying to paint this as a bit of a, a rosier picture than it than it actually is, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, they're right about one thing. Uh, the New Democrats inherited a solid economy when they took over in 2017, and they've sustained most of those metrics. BC tends to lead the country in growth or close to it. It tends to lead the country in terms of a low debt load and affordability, and it tends to lead the country in employment. So the Democrats are right, Jill, in saying that, you know, overall, the province is in pretty good shape. It can absorb a weak year or two, and it can. The other thing, of course, is that next year is an election year, and you don't want discouraging economic numbers during the year. But Joe, there's always a lag in the full impact of what happens to the province in an economy. Uh, the audited financial statements for a year don't tend to come out until uh, June of the following year. Uh, the impact on income tax and corporate tax revenues, there's a lag in that because that money is collected by Ottawa and they then send the cash on to British Columbia. So same with housing starts. We know that the finance ministry is saying there'll be fewer housing starts next year than this year, but we may not have those numbers. So all in, I think the New Democrats are kind of fingers crossed. Uh, We think we can get through this. We're hoping that there won't be much negative fallout next year. Uh, They're hoping too, Jill, they can blame it on interest rates, which the province doesn't control, on inflation, which the province has limited control over. And global markets for BC's resources, again, you're a victim somewhat of international conditions, not conditions here in BC. 
Hmm. I, I thought it was an interesting point as well made by uh, the BC United uh, former Liberal, uh, the finance critic, uh, Peter Millibar. Uh, he made reference to some of the projects or what or development in this province, but also said, you know, you can you can say, yes, it's uh, things aren't that bad, but people know what their household is like and people know how they're yeah. feeling about it. Uh, yes. And look, when we look at the level of anxiety out there, say the changing public mood around carbon taxation, that's related to cost of living. That's related to people going, what am I paying for? They look at what they're paying at the pump. Uh, the carbon tax is growing every year. Home, It's growing for home heating every year. You're paying this and you're going, what am I getting for it? Well, you know, you're British Columbia is still ravaged by all the forces of climate change because British Columbia is only a tiny contributor to global emissions. Uh, yes, we have to do our part, but people are going, oh, why am I doing my part when other places aren't paying taxes as high as this? We have one of the highest carbon taxes around, I think the highest. So it's not, uh, the, the, there is, you know, if you look at where the trouble would be on the horizon for the New Democrats next year on the economic front, I think you're right, Jill. It's going to have more to do with the impact on uh, cost of living, household budgeting. And on that front, the government is going to try to give us back some more cash. We've already heard, because we got a confidential government memo about it, uh, that they're looking at a rebate or a freeze in BC hydro rates. So, you know, if you're getting cash back from the government, I don't think you worry too much about where it's coming from. And you're certainly not going to sit around and go, well, you know, our debt metrics are kind of off the average now for the first time. That, that sort of thing comes later. It doesn't show up as a big anxiety in election year. If it did, the federal liberals would have been in trouble a long time ago <laughs> instead of right now where they're in trouble over the, from the people that are paying the carbon tax. Continuing now with The View from Victoria with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, you were talking a little bit about the poll and those numbers that were released. And I, I found that really interesting. And you've pointed out the New Democrats think that they, they're getting making all of this game or making these gains with the, the young people. But that's not exactly what the poll is showing. Yeah, the, break, the breakdown of the poll is pretty interesting. And, you know, it's a poll. So there can be errors and things change. Uh, you know, it's could be completely different polling uh, the next time. But this one is interesting on one thing, because the New Democrats have said many times that, you know, they are reaching out beyond the boomer generation. They're reaching the millennials and Gen X. They're offering them opportunity. They're addressing them directly on housing affordability and all those other issues, uh, student loans, uh, all sorts of issues around the youth vote. Makes sense. Uh, the boomers are not getting any younger, not that anybody else is. But the power base in the society is shifting to the younger contingent of voters. The poll is interesting, though. The poll says that's not what's actually happening in terms of voter preference. The poll says the NDP's strongest lead demographically is voters aged 45 and older. So the NDP has a 30-point lead over the second-place Conservatives there. Not so with younger voters. With the younger demographics, and the, the demographics are spread out in 10-year uh, increments, uh, with the younger demographics, the NDP's lead is only three points. Younger voters, 
You know, I think if you're a younger voter and you feel the society is not really working for you in terms of opportunity and housing affordability and career and future and everything else, you're disenchanted with the status quo. And so you tend to take that out on governments. I think you're seeing that federally uh, with the uh, interest that younger voters are showing in Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives, particularly on carbon tax and things like that, and on housing. And I think you're starting to see some of the same thing here. So the NDP's effort to reach out to younger voters is widespread. And, you know, we get announcements every week aimed at that. It's not translating into support. In fact, it looks as if John Rustad and the Conservatives, with a little help from the federal Conservatives, have managed to connect to the younger voters who are a little more disenchanted with the status quo than over 45 or uh, old boomers like me who are doing okay because the house is already paid for and that sort of thing. Yeah, interesting uh, numbers uh, for sure. Uh, What about BC United and uh, kind of the the struggle that they're having? I I saw one of your colleagues putting it out there. Maybe they're going to put liberal in brackets on the ballot so people remember who they are. They have a branding problem. And right when they changed their name and the name change took official effect right at the end of April, it was acknowledged right up front. Everyone knows you change your brand it involves a major marketing effort. I remember Keith Baldry of Global talking about how when BCTV became global, there's a huge effort to get people to know that it was the same TV station, just with a different name. So everybody knew they were going to have to have a rebranding exercise. It hasn't happened. Last week, we discovered why. A fundraising letter went out from BC United headquarters party's executive director, saying we've just created the rebranding fund. So here we are, end of November, we've created a fund, and we're asking party supporters to contribute to it because we have a very ambitious rebranding advertising campaign all planned, but here's the catch. The fund is empty. Hmm. They don't have any money, and we've known that generally looking at the party fundraising numbers, Jill, because the New Democrats are raising $2 for every dollar BC United has been raising. But you suddenly have, we have a fund, we have a plan, the fund is empty, and there's a warning in there to party supporters that if we don't get the money to pay for this, we're going to have to cancel the rebranding plan. Now, that's the kind of thing you do when you want to engender a bit of panic among your supporters and get them to contribute. But it also tells us, Jill, why you look at those opinion polls, the electorate gets asked questions about who you're going to vote for. They know the name BC Conservative. The Conservatives have been a factor in BC politics. Not always a major one, but they're a big factor in national politics. So you recognize the name and you go, yeah, okay, well, I like that or I don't like it, but you know what they're talking about. You get asked about BC United and if you haven't been paying close attention and you haven't, well, you haven't seen a rebranding exercise because there isn't one, that's, I think, one of the reasons why BC United polls low in the opinion polls And one of the reasons why BC Conservatives, which is at least a name people recognize, is doing better. It's not the only reason, but I think it's a factor. And you have to wonder, too, why, what was the hurry then to go and rebrand and come up with a new name if you didn't have the plan to back it up? Well, you know, I think uh, 
Kevin Falcon got asked this the other day about the fundraising thing, and he said, "Well, you know, uh, there's uh, it's it's harder to raise money when you're in the opposition than when you're government." Okay, fine. He's been around politics a long time. He knew that, and you ask him about the polling numbers, and he says, "Well, there's a lot of confusion out there." Well, <laughs> go back to why Kevin Falcon justified the name change. He said it was important to change the party name to end the confusion. That was his hmm. argument. And at the time, a lot of people raised eyebrows and said, okay, you know, good luck with that. But yeah, it's failed so far because everybody knew you had to have a major ambitious advertising campaign ready to go with traditional and print media and and, and then the other kind of media, the online stuff, you had to have all that ready to go. Not only is it, it, there is a plan, we're told, Jill, it's ready to go. They don't have the money to pay for it. And rebranding, you know, buying a lot of time on television and online stuff and everything, that is not going to be cheap. That is going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it. And BC United does not have hundreds of thousands of dollars. No, uh, not at all. Uh, Vaughn, we only have a minute left, but David Eby, did he make a a bit of a a (laughs) whoops? (laughs) Yeah, okay, so in the middle of his press conference yesterday, I'm listening carefully, and the Premier says, well, you know, the next provincial election is six months out, and I went, whoa, (laughs) that's May, Premier, you said you were going to wait till October. He very quickly came back and corrected himself. I I meant 10 10 months, 10 months, okay, was it a Freudian slip? He insisted not. He was on with our colleague, Jazz Johal on NW later uh, yesterday afternoon. And he said, I've talked to a lot of people and no one is urging me to call an early election. And he said that includes his wife, who was expecting their third child in June. So the premier does not want to be out campaigning during that critical period for his family. He says, absolutely, October the 19th is still election day. Jill, I have to tell you, there are some new Democrats privately who are saying, you know what, the way the conservatives are rising in the polls, there is an argument for going earlier and heading them off. John Rustad thinks he's facing an early election in the spring. The premier says it's not happening. That was just a slip not a Freudian stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we'll have to leave it at that. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, since October 7th, since the attack, uh, when uh, Hamas attacked Israel, there have been many, many gatherings. There have been rallies. There have been many of these happening on university campuses. And uh, recently, as you've been hearing in the news, we see, we've seen an arrest in Victoria. This after a vehicle came dangerously close to protesters in that city. It's also raising a lot of questions about the freedom of speech we have in this country. And when that line gets blurred with hate speech. And joining me to talk a bit more about that is Graham Maitland, associate lawyer with Arbo Fuldauer LLP. Graham, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Good morning. Can you talk a little bit about what actually is is safeguarded in Canada as far as our Charter of Rights and Freedoms? I know the word speech actually isn't in it, but but what what does it say about that? 
Sure. So, yes, we talk a lot about freedom of speech, and I would say that's usually because we get uh, we watch so many American TV programs and they talk about speech. Technically, in Canada, it's the freedom of this is in Section 2B of the Charter. It is the freedom of thought, belief, opinion and expression. Uh, so I like to use the term expression and it for all intents and purposes, it's the same as freedom of speech. You could say that expression is a bit more of a broad thing, um, but Realistically, what's protected is it's that it's the freedom to say and do things to express yourself, your thought, belief and opinion. However, uh, Section 2B, just like the rest of the charter, has to be read in conjunction with Section 1, which says that you have all of these rights. You have the right of expression to vote, uh, all of these things. But these rights are subject to reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So what it says, so how it works is you have all of these freedoms, but the government and the courts acknowledge that these are not blanket, you know, it, it's not, you, you don't have the freedom to do absolutely everything you want. There are reasonable limits that can be put on your freedom of expression. And that's why in this country, we have very, uh, we have criminal provisions about hate speech. And is the word hate speech actually in the the criminal code or when you talk about the criminal provisions? Because I think that's where in some cases it's very obvious that something is hate speech, but in many cases it's not. Right. So we talk about um, promoting uh, there's things about promoting of hatred. So the sort of the relevant ones that that would be applied uh, in, in most cases are section it's in section 319 of the code. And that is things like communicating statements that incite hatred against an identifiable group or communicating statements that willfully promote hatred. Uh, so those are, uh, those are things where, you know, you're going out and you are saying and you are inciting hatred or you are promoting hatred against specific groups and, and identifiable, identifiable groups is it covers a wide range of, uh, you know, distinguished based on religion or origin or sex or orientation, all of those things. And we've certainly seen examples of this with rallies taking place, not only in Canada, but around the world. A lot of those rallies uh, and conversations are taking place on university campuses. Is it is it different? Not that it would be different as far as the freedoms that Canadians have and the criminal code. But but is are university campuses uh, in some ways, are they are they held to a bit of a higher standard? So it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to say yes or no. There are specific things that universities have uh, by way of academic freedom, where the university itself, the institution, has a degree of latitude. So universities, because just so people know, the charter only applies to government and government entities. And a lot of people say, oh well, a university, it's a public university, therefore it must be a government entity. It's not. Uh, Very specifically, there's numerous cases that says, no, the government may have created it, but it doesn't control it. And so universities, the institution themselves, have academic freedom. That's why you can have uh, universities bringing in speakers where there may not be uh, an agreement between the speaker and and the rest of the university populace. With respect to individual students and uh, individual faculty, there can be things that the university can do with respect to codes of conduct or things like that about, you know, please, you know, don't do this, or we take a, pos- we take a position not to do this. But with respect to individuals doing things 
on a university campus, if they're students or otherwise, there are the standard rules with respect to the criminal code. There's also certain things in various provincial uh, human rights legislation. But it's so universities have a, a degree of a special thing, the institution, but individuals within them. Again, if they're with if they're part of the university, there's a thing there. But if they're just on the campus, then not exactly, I'd say. Uh, there was recently a controversy at the University of British Columbia when somebody had put stickers in various locations on the campus and the stickers said, I heart Hamas on them. Where would that fall under as far as breaking or, or, or being an expression? I mean, I, I think that clearly is something that is hateful. So, uh it certainly would appear to be that they, someone would be exercising their freedom of expression. But again, we would go to, okay, we acknowledge that's an, that's a, a, an, an exercise of your freedom of expression, but we also have the criminal code sections. Does it cross that line? And if so, the courts have ruled that those criminal code sections uh, are allowed to stand to infringe on your freedom of expression because you may be promoting hatred uh, or uh, or communicating statements that, that uh, incite hatred. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a dedicated criminal law lawyer. I'm not going to speak to if those specific instances. But yeah, that would you could run it through the Section 319 if someone were to say, no, 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 I've got freedom of expression. Section 1 would come in and say, yeah, but that's a reasonable limit, and it's proportional to say you can't just say whatever you want. There's also the element of if they're posting things on private property that could also cross into vandalism, but... That would be a lesser incident. (laughs) All right. Well, Graham, we'll have to leave it there for this morning. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are rejoining our contributor, Scott Schantz. Good morning again to you. Hi, good morning. How are you feeling this morning, Jill? <laughs> I feel pretty good this morning. Okay. You? It, I feel great. <laughs> yeah, I feel great. It's because I've been uh, checking my phone, you know, getting a dopamine rush from uh-huh. getting messages and looking at photos and all of the things. Are you familiar with this term dopamine? I feel like it's kind of a buzzword lately. Yes, and that that, uh, but I think we equate it with good things, but you're here to tell us that we might need a detox from this? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, um, well, yeah, dopamine is this like buzzword that has been sort of floating around and it is a good thing. It's like a good sort of chemical in your brain, at least as I understand it. I'm not a doctor or a neuroscientist or anything, but we're getting too much of it and it's causing some issues. Uh, Anna Lemke, Dr. Anna Lemke, she's an American psychiatrist. She's chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Center. And she also wrote a great book called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. And she's talking about what a dopamine detox is. And I got a chance to speak with her and I started by asking her to just even explain what dopamine is. Make in our brain, it's a neurotransmitter and it's essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. When we ingest something or do something that's pleasurable or rewarding, that releases dopamine in a dedicated part of our brain called the reward pathway. The more dopamine that is released in response to a stimulus and the faster it's released, the more likely that substance is to be uh, pleasurable, rewarding, and potentially addictive. So a dopamine fast is where we um, give up either a substance or a behavior for a period of time as a way to try to reset healthy baseline levels of dopamine firing in acknowledgement of the fact that we're living in an environment where we are exposed to so many highly reinforcing substances and behaviors. 
behaviors that we're probably overloading our brains with dopamine. Yeah, we sort of hear that all the time, that things like um, cell phones and social media. So how, how would you detox that? Do, you, do we like give up our phones? Do we just sit in a room? Do we go into nature? What, uh, what does that actually look like? What I suggest is that uh, we begin by reflecting on what is that substance or behavior that we overindulge in, that once we start using it, we have trouble stopping and ultimately harm to ourselves or the people that we care about. And that harm can be very subtle, um, like maybe just not getting enough sleep because spending too much time watching Netflix or on our phones, or it can be more significant. So it's, you know, whether your drug of choice is your phone or alcohol or cannabis or sugar or online shopping or online pornography or whatever it is, the recommendation is to choose that one thing be very deliberate um, about planning to give it up for a period of time. I usually recommend four weeks because four weeks is the average amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways. If you just give it up for two weeks, um, what will happen is you'll just experience the pain of withdrawal without any of the benefits of the fast itself. So I recommend giving it up for four weeks. And then most importantly, be prepared that in the first 10 to 14 days, you will experience withdrawal. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and cravings to use. But if you can just get through those first 10 to 14 days, which admittedly are very difficult, what you will find most likely, as most people do, is that you start to feel a lot better in weeks three and four, less craving, more ability to be psychologically present, less anxious, less depressed, sleeping better, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. Okay. So I guess the most obvious question here is, how do we get through those 14 days? Well, first of all, I think just simply anticipating that the uh, psychological and or physical pain that we have during those first 10 to 14 days will not last forever. So using our discipline and our willpower to just kind of tolerate feeling uncomfortable. But number two, the other thing that we can do is... um, actually do something that's more difficult or more painful than the pain of withdrawal. So that, and that's based on the science of hormesis. Hormesis is a Greek term that means to set in motion. And when we intentionally do things that are painful, we actually trigger our bodies to upregulate dopamine. So that's things like engaging in exercise, engaging in ice-cold water bath immersion, um, intermittent fasting, or really anything that's effortful and uh, makes us intentionally slightly uncomfortable. And essentially what's happening there is we're paying for our dopamine up front, and we actually speed up the process of withdrawal. That's just one of many ways. Um, There are also healthy sources of dopamine, like as you say, walking in nature, uh, making contact with a friend, especially in person, um, caring for a pet, being of service, all of these things. One thing to really watch out for, though, is that we don't just switch one reward for another. So let's say I'm trying to give up sugar. Um, I do, what I don't want to do is then replace that with watching you know, a Netflix show, which is also highly reinforcing. And, and the reason for not just replacing one reward with another is because there's a risk of cross-addiction, where if it really feels as good as the thing I'm giving up, then we're also vulnerable to get addicted to that other thing. It sounds very uh, purposeful and good, but it also sounds quite um, um, difficult, you know, like it's a bit intimidating to, to do it. How, like, how often do you think a regular person would need to do a dopamine detox like this? Again, I would emphasize you would really want to tailor this to the individual and for, for the person who's then able to moderate 
after the fast, then once a year is probably a good idea. For the person who's struggling to moderate even after the fast, um, then they may want to reconsider doing a longer fast or maybe even giving up that substance or behavior um, permanently. Dr. Anna Lemke, she's the author of Dopamine Nation, and uh, I don't know, I feel like I could use one of these. <laughs> I feel like we all probably could, but man, what a hard thing to do, right? Yeah, and she, I mean, everything she said made sense, but I also found myself going, no, I don't I don't want to give all of those but things But that's a up. sign that you have to, right? That's <laughs> the know, sign. And I then know. think, Jill, when you come back to those things. After a month. Yeah, but then the <laughs> dopamine will be like, nor- like giving up Netflix for a month. I don't think that's a big ask. No, no, I guess not right no. giving up sugar for a month sugar these, is a big one these th- but that seems really healthy like sure. maybe not right at christmas but like you know <laughs> i don't know. i think i'm kind of open to it i think it's i think that there are way too many things that i know what i do that i'm like this i i just love it too much and it's there all the time and it's too easy all right well let us know how that goes for you scott <laughs> you're like i'm out i'm out <laughs> all right thanks scott you got that it. Is- this is mornings with simmy Well, it was December of last year. It has been one year since the chaos at Vancouver International Airport. You'll likely remember the stories. Maybe you were one of the people stuck either at the airport waiting for your flight or... Many people, as we remember, were stuck on planes after they had landed for hours, not able to deplane. Well, the airport has made a considerable investment and is promising much, much better conditions this time around. And joining us to talk more about how YVR is preparing for the winter weather is Tamara Vrooman, President and Chief Executive Officer of YVR. Thank you so much, Tamara, for being with us today. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I know we've talked about this before and uh, what went into as far as talking to people and really looking at what happened last December. So what has changed or what is going to be different this year? Last year, after we had the uh, significant disruption due to uh, the weather that saw, as you you said, to the unacceptable uh, delays, uh, having people waiting on board aircraft, we initiated an end-to-end after-action review and released that review to the public with public consultation last spring. Subsequent to that, we spent $40 million, uh, initiated about 130 changes across our airport, everything from how we gate aircraft to the kind of equipment that we use to communications and digital tools to help uh, um, process baggage better to hiring more staff to help people, real people, answer uh, people's questions uh, if they're uh, in the terminal and wondering what to do during any kind of disruption. So we're feeling significantly uh, better prepared than we were at uh, this time next year, as we saw just uh, overnight. Mother Nature always has something unusual weather-wise uh, in store for us, and so um, we're really feeling uh, pretty good about our level of preparedness going into this busy holiday season. Uh, and you mentioned overnight. Were there any issues, uh, given the atmospheric river and the uh, intense rainfall yesterday? Were there issues at the airport? Uh, no, there weren't. We certainly had a lot of rain uh, in the ditches and uh, and on the airfield, but it drained as it should, and uh, all our operations are uh, fully normal today. Uh, we talked about, the, uh, the again, this time last year, when people were stuck on the planes for hours, and, I mean, we were interviewing people that were on the airplanes, people were calling, and, uh, and, and it was awful uh, for people that yeah. were stuck on those planes. So what has specifically changed, or how can you promise people now that that won't happen again? 
Yeah, you're 100% right. It was uh, totally unacceptable for people to be uh, stuck on uh, aircraft for that length of time. And the situation that we had was was simply that due to the weather and uh, due to the shortage of ground towing crews, which uh, airlines contract to, to move their aircraft to and from gates, we had planes that were empty were sitting on gates that prevented uh, planes that were full uh, from coming onto the those gates. And so the specific changes that we've made, there have been quite a few, but the ones that are uh, most relevant to that issue are we now require, uh, most people were surprised to learn that it's not the airports that tows uh, aircraft, it's the airlines. And so most of the time, thousands of times uh, each and every week, that works without incident. But when there is something that is irregular, usually weather, it can really disrupt that process. So we have now uh, instilled a policy that says airlines must be able to show us if they're using certain gates that they can get their aircraft off that gate within 30 minutes. We also have contracted uh, reserve crews to make sure that if for some reason the airline can't do that, we can deploy those crews to the gates. And we will also hold a few swing gates open so that in periods where we know that the weather is forecast uh, to be heavy, either in snow or rain, we can make sure that we have extra gates available so people don't have to wait any longer than 30 minutes on an aircraft. So so with that in place then, so the, the protocol now to ensure arriving aircraft access that gate within 30 minutes, are there penalties if that doesn't happen? We haven't instilled financial penalties uh, yet. We haven't needed to. We're really focused on uh, the passenger and making sure that the passenger uh, has the best experience possible, even when uh, the weather causes disruption, uh, as it does uh, from time to time in at any airport, in uh, really in any any place in the world. Um, we're really focused on the passenger, and so the most important thing to us is to make sure that the passenger uh, gets uh, as efficiently on their way as possible. So we haven't had to put financial penalties in. If we find that's an issue, of course, that's something we can look at. But so far, the airlines, they want the same thing. And so we've been working very collaboratively together and uh, we're seeing real improvements with these new protocols. Right. So so is it uh, the issue then or, or from this point moving forward that that will be monitored or is someone paying attention and making sure that that is all happening within 30 minutes? And, and then what happens then if, if you find that there are cases where it's not happening within 30 minutes? Yeah, so what we've also done is instilled uh, a number of new sensors and a new digital platform that allows us to track every movement uh, on our airfield and in our airports digitally. And we share that information with all of the players in the uh, and our partners in the ecosystem. So we're all looking at the same data in real time to make proactive decisions in the best interest of the passengers. So there's no question or debate anymore about how long uh, an aircraft or someone's perception or when they check their watch, which frankly, was uh, sometimes how it happened uh, in the past. So we now have the ability, as I said, to tow that aircraft off the gate to make way for an incoming aircraft if needed. Uh, the numbers as well. Uh, last December was was very busy. And again, people will remember that. It sounds like, though, this December with people getting back and traveling more, is, is this correct? So about two million passengers expected, and that's about a quarter of a million more than last year? Actually, it's a little over two million. It's closer to two point two five million, which is uh, which is about a quarter of a million higher than the about two million that we had last uh, last December. So yes, the dis- busiest days that we're forecasting at YVR this holiday season are the twentieth, 
the 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Um, those will be the three busiest days uh, as they were last year as people want to get home or uh, out to see friends and families or take that all-important uh, holiday vacation with family. And so we're telling people to come early, make sure they uh, use the digital tools that we have to pre-book parking, both for savings and also uh, for ease of use, and also to use our YVR Express product to pre-book CATSA screening, which has worked really, really well through the summer. People have been able to know what time they go through screening, they come, they don't wait in line, and through they go and get to the other side. And and you kind of answered my question, but uh, that that was, uh, I was going to ask you, what can passengers do? So there are these new uh, uh, technologies that are available for people and and what else or or is there anything else passengers can do to, to expedite things? We've also really heard the message that uh, passengers uh, gave us through the after-action review when they said, look, we get that aviation is a complex ecosystem of, of many, many agencies uh, and companies working together. And most times that works really, really well. But when it doesn't, we want one source of information so we can plan and understand how to make decisions when things aren't going exactly as scheduled, particularly in times of weather. So we have proactive communications on our website and all of our social channels. Channels, please check those. Those do have the most current information. And then, yes, use the digital tools to make sure that you can plan and have some certainty through your journey. We also have hired a number of new frontline staff, so there's real people to answer your questions if you have any questions once you get into the airport. All right, going to be a very, very busy month. Tamara yes, Vroomen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks for your interest, Jill. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, B.C. Premier David Eby has made an announcement about drug treatment, saying a new model of streamlining access to detox and addiction treatment aims to address the needs of people who repeatedly overdose, and it will also avoid the possibility of involuntary treatment. We know that St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver launched its Road to Recovery initiative this fall, and the Premier talked more about that during this announcement, saying that is offering immediate assessments and a team to plan treatment treatment and follow-up care. And again, the aim is to have that seamless transition into treatment and other services. So we also learned a little bit more about a program as well. This is a pilot program that is going to pay people who are addicted, who are using drugs. It will pay them to enter into that treatment. Well, joining me on the line now to talk more about these announcements is Dr. Julian Summers, Distinguished Professor of Health Sciences and Addiction at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Summers, thank Thank you so much for taking some time today. It's my pleasure. Uh, what is your reaction when you hear about the expansion of the Road to Recovery program and uh, some of the comments from the Premier? Well, um, having watched this um, crisis and tragedy now play out closely over a, a number of years, this is um, too little and, 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 and way, way too late. But it is very little also. Um, the, the government, uh, the crisis that we're in right now is very much a product of government policies created by the very people in out, uh, behind this announcement. Early, just to put this in context a little bit, you know, we have a provincial crisis. But if we just look at St. Paul's Hospital, where this is located, my, my colleagues and I earlier this year published the finding that people admitted to St. Paul's for addictions or uh, with or without other mental illnesses stay on average three weeks, and fully one in five are discharged to no fixed address. 
which for most means homelessness. No surprise, the ones that are discharged to no place are far more likely to be readmitted within the same month. Now, this three weeks is a substantial investment. This is happening in hospitals and communities all around the province. And the government has been presented with options to build up service components that were already proven to be helping people, took a hard pass, and instead gambled on the combination of decriminalization and what they refer to as safe supply. As things have continued to get worse, the government's now facing a couple of potential scandals that have been reported related to those policies and, and, and how they came about. And I think this is really a very, a very small distraction from those other issues. I'm, I'm, when you say it's small, uh, looking at those numbers, so the initial launch of beds for the Road to Recovery uh, program, it was 34 beds uh, capacity. It's not even going to be, be really increased until, I think, 2025. There'll be extra detox beds, transition beds, uh, 50 treatment and recovery beds. Will that even make a dent, do you think? Well, um, unfortunately, it, it actually it can't, um, not only because of its size, but at this stage in our crisis, where we obviously, I mean, I'm just going to take us to a very morbid place for a second. We've lost thousands and thousands of lives, and yet the death toll continues day after day after day. That means that around the province, each day, new people are being put at increased risk. There is no part of our provincial strategy that is focused in a deliberate and, and, and evidence-based way on risk reduction. This rollout is not only tiny, it presumes that people have already, number one, made their way to the lower mainland, and number two, are sick enough to require a hospital bed. So we're once again being extremely reactive, like I said, way too little, way too late. What do you think about the other uh, part of the announcement? And this was the pilot project, and this is set to begin next year, uh, operating out of the same uh, centre, the Road to Recovery Program at St. Paul's. Uh, This is the one that's being privately funded. It was the half a million dollar anonymous donation. But this is actually going to pay people to go into treatment. I, I, I honestly, I mean, I, I, I applaud the, the, the impetus uh, behind it, but it, um, we, we have work by, done by major uh, scientific and clinical leaders around the world addressing opioid crises, not, which are not restricted to BC, detailing what has been shown by evidence to be the most effective. We meet people through shelters, and there are ways of engaging them in um, the process of risk reduction, wellness, and long-term recovery that are well-established. We've run randomized trials in Vancouver, proving their effectiveness here. We have specialized court programs for people whose lifestyle involving drugs has led them repeatedly into contact with police and courts. And these are, and there are interventions like our drug treatment court, our community court, that provide people with pathways out of that lifestyle. And we're ignoring, essentially, the evidence base somehow with a fixation that our best and brightest in the B.C. government and at the B.C. CSU are going to come up with novel ideas when, in fact, we don't know that they're going to work and we're overlooking things that have been proven effective. So it's, uh, 
it's a it's a bit of a mystery why we're perseverating in this path, but um, it's it's the path that the government has been following for many years. Is, is there some overlap though in the work that you've done on this and the reports that you have put forward and and given to to the BC government? Is there some overlap in in the announcement in what the premier announced yesterday, albeit on a much smaller scale? But does it look like the province is actually taking some of your recommendations or acting on some of the evidence that you put forward? No, I, I, I don't think so. What governments around the world are, are, are turning attention to is that people with very serious addictions and very serious risk are being seen in our housing sector, social assistance, criminal justice, police, health in various ways. And they're organizing all of those, um, in our case, ministries at a government level so that they're coordinating with one another. And that's really what we recommended. It, it's, it's, a, it's a vision toward long-term recovery for people who are clearly in crisis. Um, we proposed to the government a, a, a way of implementing that. It was ignored. We also proposed that the government should use information systems. One of our strengths was that we had the ability to measure people across these different sectors. A quarter of a million people had been um, included in, in this work over two decades. And we suggested that the government should use that information system to routinely evaluate how things were going. Um, Their response was within a week to order us, again, after two decades, to destroy the entire database. Hmm. This was only a year and a half ago. So I I really think that this move is a tiny, tiny sliver. It's using the right words, recovery, continuum of care. It's using those things, but in such a small way as to be insignificant. And as I said earlier, really, I think, as a distraction from some of these recently reported and looming crises. We only have about a minute left, but is there something then that that could be done, you think, or or what direction needs to be taken to actually make a difference? Because like you said, people are dying of this every day. Well, I think the first thing we, we should be doing is, is, is reestablishing our, our, evalu- our, our surveillance capabilities so that we can see how, how, many pe- how people are leaving prison or leaving shelters and what's happening to them, leaving hospital. We, don't, we, we shouldn't be a, a, a living in a place where fully, fully one in five people are, are leaving the hospital after weeks with nowhere to go, only to return. So we need to reestablish systematic measurement so we can all see what's happening. And we should be thinking... We should be taking further steps to integrating our courts and corrections, our health services and our long-term social services, and crucially, in locations around the province where there's clear evidence of need. Right now, people are forced to migrate, often to urban centers where, where, where their, their needs are not met. We need to decentralize and deploy those services early on and address that thing that I, I said, risk reduction. We've got to be intervening positively, constructively, much earlier in order to address this crisis. Dr. Summers, thank you so much for making the time this morning. Appreciate you coming on the show. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, uh, many parents are looking for childcare spaces. We'll have horror stories of trying to find childcare spaces. It's happening in Vancouver, but other parts of Metro Vancouver as well. It is also something that was discussed at council and some interesting ideas being put on the table. Joining us now to talk a bit more about that is Lisa Dominato, an ABC Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. 
Thanks, Jill. Good morning. Good morning. The number looks uh, pretty huge. The city of Vancouver alone looking at uh, 15,000 licensed spaces. That's the deficit. So in need of thousands of childcare spaces. And I know several proposals were brought up and discussed at council. What types of things is council looking at to try and deal with this? Yeah, I just I absolutely just want to acknowledge the the mass problem that you've identified there is upwards of 50,000 uh, spaces shortfall in the city. And just acknowledge that, as you noted at the very beginning, this is probably one of the most trying things for a parent when you have a, a going back to work date looming uh, is finding a safe, a secure childcare. And it's an economic necessity for parents. And so I just want to underscore that. And I'm a mom myself, but I have two daughters who were in childcare. So um, but City Council does acknowledge this is a really critical issue for families, particularly want families to be able to stay and live and work in the city. So we are undertaking a number of steps. One of them is looking at harmonizing with the provincial guidelines. Um, provincial guidelines are uh, currently under review, and we expect to see new ones in uh, the spring. We anticipate that will provide potentially more flexibility to establish childcare We're also looking at reducing um, the time it takes and the number of reviews involved in terms of development permits. We're looking at relaxations around parking. You heard that come up with a couple of the recent residential cases where there was on-site parking requirements. We're looking at eliminating those altogether. But we're also looking at how we define childcare within our uh, zoning laws because that has been a source of confusion. Because once you go uh, above eight children, it triggers a different use for the land use. And so that's a part of the bigger part of the conversation that we're having right now at City Council. So if that was to change and those zoning bylaws, those were relaxed, what do you think, what would that look like? Because we have had a couple of those applications and certainly there have been a lot of opinions and a lot of comments from neighbours. Certainly, and one of the key triggers for being refused was that there would be no one living on site. But here's a perfect example. We did have an application recently that was refused on a number of counts, but a key factor was not having someone live on site, but they were actually proposing that the main home could be used for childcare. So it currently had eight spaces. They wanted to double to 16, but they also had a laneway on site. And what they wanted to do was ensure the laneway remained residential and could serve as a home for the early childhood educator. Because that's another issue is we have a labor shortage and we also have the issue of having affordable housing. And so from my perspective, that was a win-win. And so we actually gave direction last week at, uh, to count at staff is to look at that as an option where you have that, you still have residential, so we're not losing the housing, but we're combining the two on one site. And what about the concerns, though, from neighbours saying, and I know some of the issues that were brought up, and not only in Vancouver, this has happened in other cities as well, uh, increased noise, using a residential house for for more of a commercial use. What about the concerns that some neighbours have raised? You know, I heard those concerns, but we're talking about a very small number of applications. We have roughly maybe a thousand residential uh, child care spaces in this city. Um, it triggers an institutional use, which is very similar to a school. Um, and again, um, what I hear from parents and what I heard on the doorstep um, during the election was we need more child care and we need more options and we need safe, secure child care. And so, again, we're asking staff to go back and look at some ways to make it more flexible, 
how can we also prioritize um, childcare in specific neighborhoods? Um, one of our staff remarked last week that it's a desert out there, but that desert is in the southwest, southeast parts of the city. And also, we heard very clearly from the downtown BIA recently is that we need more childcare spaces in downtown as people are coming back to work and working in their office spaces. So, um, frankly, at the end of the day, we need to prioritize putting childcare in, and um, and that is a priority of, of this council. Is it fair, though, to to put that in, to put it on residential uh, homeowners or to put it on residential neighbourhoods and, and private space, that that's what's being looked to to solve this problem? You know, we, we have residential childcare already throughout the city. Um, what we're looking at is just simply, is there an ability to increase the number of kids can, that can be cared for on those, on those sites? And again, our staff are going to come back with recommendations um, it's still a priority to maintain housing um, uh, on those uh, properties. But again, a hybrid is possible where you have a main dwelling being used for childcare and then the laneway being used for um, housing for early childhood educators. So I think that's a possibility. The other thing that we're looking at right now is the possibility of building uh, childcare on public lands, particularly in partnership um, with school board. And these are prefab modular sites. And so um, it's easy to put up, and what you can do is you can have childcare on the bottom, and you can have workforce housing on top. We can move quite quickly to put those up. So we're in discussions uh, with the VSB about options for that. And 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 just to go back, just to, uh, talking about residential neighborhoods as well. And I and I realize that in one case, when we're talking childcare, we're talking about solving a problem, and when we're talking about something like short-term rentals, it's it it can be seen as something that's creating a problem. But is there is there a question of fairness that we are talking about? about residential homes. We're talking about private property that on the one hand, government is saying you cannot use your property for short-term rentals. On the other hand, looking at completely relaxing the rules to make it again a commercial entity saying, yes, you can have a commercial business in there. Mm. I think this is very different from short-term rentals. Um, uh, there's very We're getting very few applications around uh, um, increasing uh, childcare and residential areas. This is a, a bit of an uptick. But it's not a lucrative space. Um, it's really based on people recognizing there's a need. And again, at this time, we're still preserving and protecting housing on site. Uh, but we are going to have staff look at options for more flexibility. And so that may be, again, that hybrid model of the laneway, the home, um, increasing potentially the number of spaces that can be on a specific property. Uh, we don't define that very clearly in our zoning bylaws. That is done in other jurisdictions. Uh, and again, things like uh, removing parking on site that may allow for more space. But um, I, I think, again, uh, we need to be responsive to what we've heard um, very loudly and clearly from families is that we need to be creative uh, about creating childcare spaces in the city. So where do things go from here? And I know this came from a presentation at Council, uh, the presentation uh, that was that was made that showed, uh, like you said, the, the desert and, and the fact that there was that kind of desert everywhere. There was a, there's a shortage of childcare spaces everywhere. But uh, th- this uh, came again from from that presentation. What happens now with the ideas that you've brought up here and with the things now that, that staff are looking at? Yeah, so uh, staff will be reporting back to Council um, in next year, mid-year, and, and so that includes them looking at a simpler application process and lower upfront fees, uh, as I said, increasing the number of allowable childcare spaces on a property. 
uh, prioritizing applications for neighborhoods uh, where it's most acutely needed, uh, removing on-site parking requirements, and then other relaxations related potentially to building upgrades and zoning. Um, and those reports will be coming back uh, by mid-year next year, and uh, that will also dovetail with the provincial guidelines that we anticipate will offer a bit more flexibility uh, for um, adding childcare spaces in the city. And on the civic level, this is obviously dealing with with bylaws and dealing with red tape at the civic level. But you mentioned the provincial government as well and provincial guidelines. Uh, We've also uh, been hearing uh, on on the federal from the federal government uh, the fact that that there was this idea we were going to have ten dollar a day daycare and it was going to be everywhere. How do the other levels of government play into this on, on what you're dealing with as a civic council? Yeah, it's, it's actually a really great question, Joe, because it actually is quite complex. Um, there's the federal role in terms of providing stable funding through transfer agreements to provinces and territories. Then there's pr- the provincial role, and there's two pieces. There's the Ministry of Health, which sets the child care licensing regulations for health and safety in the child group child care space. And then the Ministry of Education that sets policies and directions um, and also provides guidelines for capital operating uh, as well as supporting affordability. And then uh, principally at the city level, we're dealing with land use, but we're also um, working with um, the building community. So when we have new developments, sometimes um, it's a prerequisite as a new development goes up that uh, child care is delivered in kind as part of that development. So that is something that we look for in many of our, our new developments as we're adding density, that child care be a part of that. So that's part of the civic role. And then working with nonprofit partners as well to deliver that child care locally. All right, Councillor Dominato, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi.